0: I just, I can't tell you how good it is to be back together, and my public speaking skills in front of people are probably uh, rusty. (laughs) We are not a church that uses um, a liturgical calendar, a liturgical church, but some of you may have some experience with that. And you may be familiar with the phrase, ordinary time. So on a liturgical calendar, essentially, ordinary time is any religious time that does not fall in either the the Advent, so the Christmas season, or the Lent and Easter seasons. Not the holidays, but the ordinary days. This is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes was getting at when he wrote this poem, I'm sure it's familiar to you. For everything there is a season. For a time and for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. A time for peace. Shalom in Hebrew. But we are left here under heaven as the poem opens with anything but peace right we hear of wars and rumors of wars every day and just when, it se- think, just when it seems that things can't get any worse in our own nation it does Pete Seeger the folk singer he took those verses from Ecclesiastes And he made them into that song that you were thinking of when I was reading that poem, those verses, made famous by the birds, turn, turn, turn. And when the song comes to that last line, a time for war and a time for peace, he added the words, I swear it's not too late. There's a time for war and a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. And while Seeger wrote this as a a protest song, it's actually true. It's not too late for peace. But a a bigger peace than he could ever have imagined. And really the only reason that it's not too late is because our God is the author of all of that time. Our God is the author of time. There's another great song by Phil Kage. He puts it like this. The name of the song is Time. He says this, Well, he hasn't always been around, and he won't always be, But he's on the move at this moment, measuring life for you and me. I fear we all submit to him, existing anxiously. And no one is able to turn him off except the Lord who holds the key. And when the Lord stops him, that'll be it. Too late for apologies. Too late to forgive your brother. Too late to get on your knees. When the Lord stops him, that'll be it. Too late to help the needy. And worst of all, it's too late to turn. You must face eternity. His name is Time and he's coming to an end his name is time where will you be my friend time is a funny thing in God's economy at creation he created time and there was evening and there was morning day by day and yet God exists outside of time he's eternal so the Baptist catechism says it like this question seven is what is God the answer is God is a spirit infinite eternal and unchangeable in his being, in wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God, from outside of time, created time. He created seconds and minutes and hours and days and nights and weeks. He created the Sabbath for us to rest in him. Yet from time to time, God has been silent Sometimes he has been silent for hundreds of years, or even more, even when it seemed like the people of God needed to hear from him. Think of the times between Genesis and Exodus when they were being oppressed in Egypt, or between the Old and the New Testaments when they were being oppressed by the Romans by the time we get to the New Testament. But time is a funny thing in God's eyes. Peter tells us that that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years. And he says that in the context of of talking about Christ's return, of our waiting for him to make all things new and, and right. A little while to the Lord might be a might be different than a little while to you and me, right? When will this pandemic be over? In a little while. When will we be able to meet again as one church, one assembly again? In a little while. When will Christ return and, and put an end to all this sin and death? In a little while. John chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 20 to, uh, 16 to 22. So John sixteen sixteen. I, I I'm out of practice. I forgot to have you stand earlier when we read from 1 Corinthians, so let's stand right now. I'm going to read John 16, 16 to 22. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me. And again, in a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but you, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. You may be seated. Let's stop and pray. Lord, it's this little while that we are waiting for. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in your word today. We're a needy people. We, we need to know Christ. We need to be reminded of his promises. I pray that you would give us understanding today, Lord, ears to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> Jesus has been giving his disciples, uh, the remaining 11 men, He's been giving them encouragement and instruction. And he has declared to them, really just in the previous section that we looked at last week, to use the words of Jonah, he has declared to them, salvation belongs to the Lord. And now, really, in these verses, he's going to tell them why. How do we know that salvation belongs to the Lord? Well, we know this because of what's about to happen. We are hours away from the cross. We are hours away... From his arrest, the trials, his crucifixion, and probably around 12 hours, maybe 15, 16 hours away from his death when he says these words. It's the night before. And remember, for these men, their hearts are filled with sorrow. Sorrow because of the words that he has been saying to them. He's been telling them that he is going to be leaving them. But we know, we know now that the only way to truly take sorrow away is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who will one day, in a little while, wipe away every tear. David reminds us in the psalm that I read this morning for our call to worship, he said, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. For a little while we will face sorrow, but joy comes in the morning. And those words there from Psalm 30, they're helpful for us as we begin to understand really this passage. In a little while, sorrow. And then in a little while, joy. So let's begin with sorrow. In a little while, sorrow. Look again at verses 16 through 19. It's repetitive and a little choppy when the disciples start talking. But verse 16 says this, a little while you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is, what is this he's saying to us, a little while you will not see me, again a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he is talking about. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so, they said, uh, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I mean by saying, a little while you will not see me, and again, in a little while you will see me? I almost think these, these verses are written like this so that, we would, so that we would feel the disciples' confusion. They are incredibly confused with the words that he is saying. They clearly have no idea what he is talking about. From the very beginning of this upper room discourse, they seem to be a little bit lost in the conversation. Philip and Thomas both question him early in chapter 14. And then throughout history, just so that we understand that the disciples aren't the only ones who are confused by this, throughout history, pastors and theologians have debated which little while Jesus is talking about. Does this refer to the, the little while until his death on the cross, which will take place the following day and then, and then later the resurrection? Does he have in mind that little while that he will remain with them until his ascension and then the little while of, between that and the sending of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost? Pentecost. Or could he be talking about the sorrow that his people face even during these last days as we await his return when our joy will be complete and we will see him face to face? Is that the little while that he is talking about? Well, John Calvin believed in the first option. Augustine held to the third. And yet today many knowledgeable Bible scholars think it's probably some sort of combination of all three of these. I'm going to admit that that's appealing to me, since Scripture often puts prophetic events together and sometimes doesn't delineate between two events. But in order to answer the question, what little while is he talking about, we need to begin with, who is he talking to? Here it's obviously the eleven. This entire talk is Jesus preparing them for what they will experience in the, in the coming hours. In a little while, the disciples of Jesus Christ will weep and lament because of his death. Look ahead at verse 20. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. At different times throughout his ministry. Jesus had, had told those closest to Him of what would soon happen. Matthew sixteen twenty one is one good example. It says this, From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then even earlier in, in this chapter of John, He had said, uh, I think it's the middle of verse 4, he said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me where is he going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I'm going to him who sent me. All of this confuses them. You can see their confusion in those, really in verses 17 and 18 in particular. John writes it this way, I think, so that we can see their confusion. But what Jesus is really saying to them is that at the moment, they are confused, but soon, that emotion of confusion is going to change into weeping and lament in sorrow. Soon, they're not going to be confused anymore. They're going to be filled with sorrow. Why? When we come to... When we come to a Good Friday, we missed it this year. We were not able to assemble, at least. The past couple of years, we've had, on Good Friday, just a simple communion service. So, typically, I would read um, passages about Jesus' arrest and His crucifixion. We would probably read from Isaiah 52 and 53, which prophesied that the Messiah would, would be going like a lamb to the slaughter. But when we gather and we do that each year, when we eat the the bread of life and we drink of the cup of the new covenant in His blood, we do so, we, we do so in light of the empty tomb, right? We know of His resurrection. When we gather together on a good Friday every year, we know that Sunday's coming, right? We know that... That Jesus came out of the tomb but imagine being these disciples he's comforting them he's encouraging them because they're going to go through some very difficult times in fact I want to give you five reasons that the disciples of Jesus Christ are going to weep and lament in sorrow the first one is probably the biggest and most obvious Number one is they will weep and lament in sorrow because of the injustice and the horror of the crucifixion. Because of the injustice and the horror of the crucifixion. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus has faced an an increasing opposition. But up until this point, he has always been able to, to outwit his enemies Either with his words or, or simply by, by slipping out of the crowd. I I want to remind you of the threat that he faced back in John chapter ten. It says this, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I, I've shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? Then again, a little bit later, just a few verses later, in that same chapter, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Jesus has successfully escaped danger and threats of death, but all of that is about to change now. In fact, to the eleven, it had to have looked like he was just giving up here. See, after his arrest, later this same evening, at least some of the eleven, we know at least Peter and John, most of them are scattered, but at least Peter and John follow at a distance, and they witness a mockery of a trial. And this time, Jesus doesn't reason his way out of it. This time, Jesus doesn't escape from their hands. In fact, for the most part, he stayed silent. Like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Although he does eventually say one thing. The gospel according to Matthew tells the story, so listen to this. And those who had seized Jesus and led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the Scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end, that is, the end of the trial. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? We have now heard his blasphemy. But not only did at least Peter and John uh, witness this mockery of a, t- of a trial with its false witnesses, putting words in Jesus' mouth, But they also witnessed the violence done to him. Just just jump ahead a page or so to chapter 19. John 19. I'm just going to read the first three verses. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Think of those words for a minute. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him verse 2 and the t- soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed on him and arrayed him in a purple robe they came up to him saying hail king of the jews and struck him with their hands just consider those three verses we know that shortly after this his own people Those who refused to receive him, John chapter 1, they would cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. Kill him as violently as you can. Charles Spurgeon, um, preaching on this passage, would, would say this. He said, might not angels wish to weep in sympathy with him? Who can forbear to sorrow when Jesus Jesus stands insulted by menials, reviled by abjects, forsaken by his friends, blasphemed by his foes? It was enough to make man's heart break to see the Lamb of God so roughly handled. And then, of course, really the biggest reason for their sorrow that he is preparing them for here in John 16 is the crucifixion itself. The horrors of the physical pain inflicted on their friend. His torment. He would cry out from the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? So what about us? Do we ever weep and lament with sorrow at how the the Son of God was treated? Or at how He is still treated. When people completely disregard His claims. When people completely mock His offer of grace and mercy. When they mock and make fun of the cross. The sober truth of the cross is not the only reason for their sorrow, or even ours. It's probably the most prominent in our minds. But another cause for weeping and lamentation and sorrow is the reason for his crucifixion. So why did Jesus go to the cross? It wasn't because he just gave up that night. It was, that wasn't the reason that he went to the cross. He did um, turn himself over to them. But that wasn't the reason that he went to the cross. It was it wasn't because they finally outsmarted him. It wasn't because they finally trapped him. It was because of our sin. The wages for your sin, my sin, is death. Yet remember what he has just said to his friends. Greater love has no one than this. That someone should lay down his life for his friends. And, and that someone is Jesus. At the right time, Christ died for sinners. I think we sometimes forget this. We focus on the grace of eternal life and we forget about the mercy of not receiving our wages. The disciples would weep and lament in sorrow because he has laid down his life for them, for his friends. And because of this, really the third reason, the third reason for their sorrow is that he will no longer dwell with them. Not only are they sorrowful because of the crucifixion itself, not only are they sorrowful because he has died for them, but they are sorrowful that he will no longer dwell with them. Initially, they protested this. Peter had said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. For all of their confusion, these disciples loved Jesus. They loved him. They were troubled and confused by the prospect that he would soon leave them. Lord, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? So let me turn this around just a little bit. Do you ever long to see Jesus face to face? Do you ever long to see him? To talk to him? Hear him talking to you? Now, I don't mean, do you ever long for heaven? I don't mean, do you desire to be in a better place? I don't mean, do you, do you desire to be reunited with a lost loved one? But do you, do you long to be with Jesus? As we eat the bread and drink the cup, do you desire to eat the marriage supper of the Lamb? Do you desire to sit at His table like Mephibosheth and eat As one of his friends, would you rather be at the wedding feast or at a funeral dinner? They were filled with sorrow because they would not see him again for a little while. For a little while. And then, number four, we will be filled with sorrow because the world is rejoicing. Remember, the world hates Jesus, and so they mock, as they did when he was on the cross. In that passage, you would have destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days. They will mock him, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. James Montgomery Boyce, a pastor in Philadelphia, he said the world, far from sorrowing at the loss of Jesus, actually rejoiced that he was now out of their way and would no longer be a bother to them. The world mocks, even to today. The world mocks every time there's a natural disaster, every time something bad happens, Often, not always, but often, there is mockery behind the question, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God stop COVID-19? Why doesn't God stop whatever storm or flood or earthquake or disease or sickness, whatever problem is happening at the moment? I think another way the world mocks is when false teachers try to rebuke For example, the disease and blow it away. It's a mockery of Jesus and a mockery of his promises. And then lastly, they are filled with sorrow because it looks as though Jesus seems to have failed. In his encounter with a couple of the disciples on the road to Emmaus... Uh, later after the resurrection they didn't know it was jesus and one of them said to him in sadness we had hoped that he was one the one to redeem israel I- did you catch that we had hoped that he was the one to redeem israel we had hoped and our hopes are now crushed because they think he's still in the grave we had hoped It's easy to get discouraged. Sometimes we look at our own ministries and we see them as failures, as though Jesus is not working through us. We've never led someone to Christ. Children have abandoned the faith. Church closed or missionaries return home defeated. Sometimes it seems that we are more devoted, uh, the more we are devoted to Christ, the more troubles we face and the more disappointment we experience. Some will tell you that Christians shouldn't suffer, they shouldn't grieve, they shouldn't fail, that something is wrong with you if you do, and and usually they pick on your faith at that point. Either it's your fault, or God has failed you. But Christ did not look at the cross as a defeat. He didn't look at the cross as a defeat, at least not His defeat. And because of that, He promises that in a little while, your sorrow will turn to joy. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. In a little while, joy comes in the morning. Look again at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This is his resurrection. This is the miracle that that proves all of the other miracles, right? Right? because this is the sign that gives our faith sight r- reality the apostle paul said that christ's death and resurrection is of first importance 1st corinthians 15 he goes on later in that chapter uh, in the middle of chapter 15 of 1st corinthians to say this he says now if christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that God raised Christ whom He didn't raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Listen. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves God's power of creation. proves God's power over even death. It proves His power over sin. It is true that they have faced sorrow for a little while, but soon their weeping will be turned into joy and And this is still true. Our sorrow will be turned to joy. The sorrow and suffering that we face in this life will be turned to joy in the next. The sufferings of this present age are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But the incredible thing about our Savior is that the resurrection, see if you can follow this, the resurrection doesn't replace the crucifixion. Like the old covenant or the new covenant replaces the old covenant? We still eat the bread and drink the cup and proclaim his death until he comes. And in doing this, we are identifying with him. But we can eat and drink in joy and hope because his atoning death brings us life. This is why Paul would say, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Or far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why in the book of Revelation, the heavenly host will sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Because joy comes in the morning. Because joy came to these men and then to the whole world on that first Easter morning. Resurrection Sunday. And through the sorrow and the joy of of the cross and the resurrection, we have been given new life. Look at verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. No one will take that joy from you. I want to read the rest of Psalm 30. I just read the first five verses. I want to actually read, there's only 12 verses. I want to read this Psalm 30. Listen to the whole thing again. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol and restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. You have clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Can you hear the resurrection in that psalm? Can you hear the new life in that psalm? You have turned my mourning into dancing. A little while we will have sorrow, but then in a little while our sorrow will be turned to joy. There is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We pray today, O Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. In a little while, in a little while, Our mourning will be turned into dancing. Let's pray together. Lord, we read these words, Psalm 30, we hear of the words that Christ spoke to us and um, to his disciples in John 16, in a little while. the weeping comes at night, but joy comes in the morning, Lord, we long for that morning when when we can see you face to face when you will wipe away every tear when we can rejoice and see you and dwell in the presence of our god and savior forever lord until then we proclaim that all all i have is christ We pray that we would understand these things, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.